guys. Thanks for bringing the church into this building, as I try to say each and every week. Uh, if you're new, if you're joining us for the first time, um, or even if this is your second or third time and those visits have been sporadic, just to kind of bring you into the loop on where we are right now as a church as it pertains to our time in the scriptures. We are in the book of Luke. We've been in the book of Luke for quite some time, going back to, what is it now, the end of 2020, I believe. Uh, We're gonna continue to march our way toward the end of this book, Lord willing, by the end of the summer, somewhere around in there. Uh, We find ourselves this morning on the journey to Jerusalem with Jesus. Uh, we've, we've moved past the beginning section where Jesus is in Galilee and, and there are many miracles and uh, teachings that come to bear in, in the early ministry of Jesus. And somewhere along the way in chapter nine, Jesus sets his face like Flint to Jerusalem where he will forward march to his death and resurrection. And it's in this place that we get a lot of heavy teachings of Jesus Jesus brings a lot of gravitas with these red letter words. We're gonna dive into some of those this morning. Next week, we'll get into the parables of the lost found, including the story of the prodigal. Things will lighten up just a bit, though there's a lot of gravitas to what Jesus says there as well. I think we'll see as we dive in that maybe some things we thought were true of the parable of the prodigal uh, perhaps aren't what we we had in mind. And so uh, this morning, however... I invite you to open up to Luke chapter 14. We're gonna finish out this chapter beginning in verse 25 as we look at the cost of discipleship. If you don't have a Bible, uh, you can track with me on the screen behind me. This morning's passage will be up there as we work our way through, including any other passages of scripture outside of Luke's gospel account as we reference those. Let me go ahead and pray for us because we've got, though not many verses to cover, a good bit of ground to cover. Heavenly Father, Thank you for sending your son into our fallen, broken, lost, darkened world that we might have hope where there would otherwise be only despair. Thank you for the plan of redemption that you decreed before the foundations of the world. Jesus, thank you for stepping into the slums of human history that you might live the life that we could never live as we've already seen you begun, uh, having begun to establish this perfect record that you would take to the cross in our place as you would also bear our sins there. Praise you for your life, your death, your resurrection, conquering Satan, sin, and death. Thank you for sending the Holy Spirit, Spirit of God. We don't ask you or invite you, we urge you, we plead with you to awaken our minds and our affections from their slumber this morning. One of the most devastating things that could possibly happen is that we would leave this morning after having sat with these words of Jesus and say, check, where are we going to lunch? And just move right past it, right back into some sort of compartmentalized Christianity God, may it not be so. I pray that you would open our ears to hear. You would open our eyes to see those things that you have for us this morning in your word. Praise you for your word, all of your word, including passages like these that many would be inclined to skip past because of how discomforting they might be. I trust, Lord, that your word never returns void. And that is true this morning 
uh, as much as any time else that we come together and do these things with any passage of Scripture that we sit with. Spirit of God, move. Otherwise, this will surely be an exercise in futility. I ask it in the name of Jesus Christ, both our Savior and our King. Amen. So as I mentioned just a moment ago, this morning's passage picks up the the theme with which the journey to Jerusalem began back in chapter 9 as Jesus set his face like flint to the city where he would die. The cost of discipleship, that's what we're getting after this morning. The cost of following Jesus. Remember, Luke writes that the reader might have certainty regarding the Son of Man who came to seek and save the lost. But more than that, Luke writes so that we might follow Jesus as our Lord and God, as an outworking of the sure knowledge of who he is, which is what it means to be a disciple. Luke's going to bring us face-to-face yet again this morning with a teaching on discipleship, a teaching on what it means to follow Jesus that we might not only see Jesus for who he truly is, the Lord's anointed having come, believing on him, repenting of our sin and trusting in him, but two, that we might leave our nets, so to speak, and follow him, giving our lives to him in glad submission. It's with that in mind that Luke tells us, chapter 14, verse 25, now great crowds accompanied him and he turned and said to them, if anyone comes to me and does not hate his own father and mother and wife and children and brothers and sisters, yes, even his own life, he cannot be my disciple. I'll take things you don't say when trying to establish a megachurch for a thousand, Alex, right? I mean, you can just... See the gaping mouths throughout the crowd as Jesus presents them with some of the heaviest words in all of Luke's gospel account. Right? You may recall the, the three men back in chapter 9 who expressed a willingness to follow Jesus right after that pivotal turn to Jerusalem. Three men, none of whom rejected Jesus per se, but who truly didn't understand what it, what it means to follow Jesus, the cost of discipleship. Presenting us, you and me, with a sobering question to wrestle with for ourselves. Namely, do do I myself understand what it means to follow Jesus? Am I with him on the Calvary road? Jesus said to the first of those three men back in chapter 9, Foxes have holes, birds of the air have nests, but the Son of Man has nowhere to lay his head. That first man seemed to express something of an understanding of true discipleship in declaring a willingness to follow Jesus wherever he might lead. Wherever you go, Jesus, no conditions. And yet Jesus knew that the man hadn't truly counted the cost. Foxes may venture out into the vineyards and forage for food. They can always return to their dens for comfort, for safety, for rest. Birds may spread their wings and fly. They can always return to their nests. Not so for Jesus is the Calvary road. It's not one of comfort. Jesus having stepped into the slums of our broken world in order to fulfill the Father's plan of redemption, presenting the first of those three men with the question as to which of the two, comfort or Christ, was seated on the throne of his heart. That question alone enough to level each and every one of us as it pertains to our own devotion to Jesus. Is comfort seated on the throne of our hearts or is Christ seated on that throne? And then there was the the second man who promised to follow Jesus if only he could bury his father first. To which Jesus replied, Luke chapter 9 verse 60. 
Leave the dead to bury their own dead. But as for you, go and proclaim the kingdom of God. It might appear to be a shocking statement on Jesus' part, going above and beyond the call to a willingness to abandon comfort for his sake. And yet many scholars, as we talked about when we were in chapter 9, believe that this man's father wasn't actually yet deceased, but rather an elderly man drawing near to death's door. Which again, even that might seem to be a bit lacking in compassion on Jesus' part, were it not for Jesus' ability to see beneath the request to the man's heart-level intentions. Namely, that this man was using his family as an excuse in delaying his commitment to Christ. Lord, let me first. Commitment to Christ with conditions attached. Christianity on my terms. With the second of those three men, Jesus pressed not only on an idol, but the greater question of how worthy Jesus uh, was in the man's eyes. How would any of us finish that sentence? And I, my guess would be that there would, there would be a, a plethora of responses. Lord, I'll follow you, but first let me. Most of us, and this is incredibly sobering, would finish that sentence with good things. It's a reminder that, that our greatest hindrances to following Jesus are oftentimes not wicked things, but rather things that are good that become seated on the throne of our hearts. Good things made ultimate. And then there was the third man who promised to follow Jesus if only he could say goodbye to his loved ones first. Seemingly far more reasonable request than the guy who'd come before him, right? I'm not asking to go be with my aging parents until the day they die. I simply want to go say goodbye to my family and friends. Jesus responded to that man, No one who puts his hand to the plow and looks back is fit for the kingdom of God. With the third man, Jesus drew from the agrarian imagery of his day in order to drive home that point, that same point. Looking back when plowing a field, it inevitably leads to to crooked furrows. Just as looking back when driving down the highway is going to send you swerving into the next lane. If we're always looking back at what we've given up to follow Jesus will undoubtedly veer off the gospel path like wilderness wandering Israel who thought it would be better to return to Egypt. As Jesus fixed his eyes on Jerusalem, so, so too we are to fix our eyes on Jesus. Such statements on Jesus' part in response to those three men, chapter nine, an emphatic declaration, don't miss this, of his divine authority, apart from which such strong statements would be Absolutely ridiculous, would they not? I mean, why should any of us unwaveringly fix our eyes on Jesus and do so on his terms if he's nothing more than a good teacher? Why should any of us unwaveringly fix our eyes on Jesus and do so on his terms if he's nothing more than some pithy philosopher? That's silly. Who is this Jesus who calms the winds and the waves with his voice? Who is this Jesus who makes blind men see and lame men walk, casting out demons by the legions, raising people from the dead? Answer, the one worthy of giving our lives to follow without terms, without conditions. Not only Christ our Savior, but Christ our Lord. The Calvary Road, it's a hard road. But Jesus is worth it if he truly is who he says he is. 
Jesus was testing each of those men to see if he was, in fact, their greatest treasure. They wanted to follow him. His response, really? Here's what it'll cost you. Do you love me that much? Coming back to this morning's passage, similarly, Jesus looks out on the great crowds that are accompanying him, and he knows that many of those people are not unlike the three men back in chapter 9, and expressed willingness to follow him wherever he might lead, yet having failed to truly count the cost. And so he stops in his tracks, and he says to the crowds, If anyone comes to me and does not hate his own father and mother and wife and children and brothers and sisters, yes, and even his own life, he cannot be my disciple. In response to the three men back in chapter 9, Jesus wasn't, he wasn't saying that all who follow him will have to embrace a life of homelessness. Nor was he saying that all who follow him will have to abandon their families for the sake of the gospel. He was exposing the terms and conditions of of those three men as he does with each and every one of us. Similarly, here, Jesus isn't actually calling his followers to a life of literal hatred without reservation or limitation. I mean, after all, Jesus not only affirms the teaching to honor one's father and mother, Mark chapter 7, but more than that, to love even our enemies. Going back to chapter 6 of this very same book of the Bible, Again, he, he's exposing our terms. He's exposing our conditions, pressing on our idols, those things that would compete with him for our affections. That language of hatred, it was used in, in Jesus' day to communicate something of a comparative degree of affection. Looking all the way back to the story of Leah and Rachel in Genesis chapter 29, Look at these words. So Jacob went into Rachel also, and he loved Rachel more than Leah and served Laban for another seven years. And when the Lord saw that Leah was hated, he opened her womb, but Rachel was barren. See that? The Lord saw that Leah was hated in that Jacob loved Rachel more than Leah. That language of hatred expressing something of a comparative degree of affection. Coming back to this morning's passage, what Jesus is calling for is a love so great that the greatest of loves for anything or anyone else is hatred by comparison, including our own families, including our own ambitions, including our own selves. Scottish theologian Thomas Boston once said, No man can be a true disciple of Christ to whom Christ is not dearer than what is dearest to him in the world. As with the three men back in chapter 9, Jesus here tests the crowd to see if he is, in fact, their greatest treasure, as he does with, with you and with me. Is he your greatest hope? Is he your greatest joy? Is he your deepest security? Is he your most prized possession? Notice that those questions are present tense questions. Easy believism wants to to look back to a a walking down an aisle, a praying of a prayer of a moment, and, and, and stare that down constantly and obsessively. When Jesus brings present tense questions into the conversation to ask us, are you with me today? 
He says in verse 27, whoever does not bear his own cross and come after me cannot be my disciple. Christianity is not easy believism. I prayed a prayer back in the day. I meant it. I've got my ticket to heaven. I'm now gonna live for myself until I breathe my last breath. No, as I've said before, Dietrich Bonhoeffer in his book, The Cost of Discipleship, says when Christ bids a man to follow him, he bids that man to come and die. Jesus presents us with a question. Will you give up your life for my sake? Christianity is is Jesus on the Calvary road saying, are you with me? Following Jesus, as we talk about so often around here, it will cost us, it'll cost us our kingdoms. It'll cost us our glory. It'll cost us our lives. As Christians, Paul says it, our lives are not our own. They're God's to do whatever he pleases with them. Our time and how we manage it. Our talent and how we refine it. Our treasure and how we steward it. Counting everything as loss for the sake of knowing Christ Jesus, our Lord. C.S. Lewis once said, the Christian way, it's different. It's harder and easier. Christ says, give me all. I don't want so much of your time and so much of your money and so much of your work. I want you. I've not come to torment your natural self. I've come to kill it. No half measures are any good. I don't want to cut off a branch here and a branch there. I want to have the whole tree down. I don't want to drill the tooth or crown it or stop it, but to have it out. Hand over the whole natural self, all the desires which you think innocent as well as the ones you think wicked, the whole outfit. I will give you a new self instead. In fact, I will give you myself. My own will shall become yours. And now you begin to see why the first of Martin Luther's 95 theses would be that the Christian life is one of perpetual repentance. It's not a one-time act. Is what Lewis describes what you signed up for? If not, I would argue that you didn't sign up for Christianity. In the words of one scholar, the the Christian community is cruciform. It is cross-shaped. Because of our connection to Christ, our lives will be marked by the sufferings of the cross one way or another. Jesus is calling us to count the cost. Like those in the great crowds accompanying him that day. Like those three men back in chapter 9. Which is why he goes on to say in verse 28, For which of you desiring to build a tower does not first sit down and count the cost, whether he has enough to complete it? Otherwise, when he has laid a foundation and is not able to finish, all who see it begin to mock him, saying, This man began to build and was not able to finish. Here Jesus presents the first of of a couple of examples meant to get after the foolishness, the the danger even of following him without first truly counting the cost, considering the demands. Like the builder of a tower who establishes the foundation of that tower only to shamefully run out of manpower, resources before completing the work. He goes on in verse 31, or what king going out to encounter another king in war, will not first sit down and deliberate whether he is able with 10,000 to meet him who comes against him with 20,000. 
And if not, while the other is yet a great way off, he sends a delegation and asks for terms of peace. The second example, communicating the same point, right? Again, the foolishness, the danger of following Jesus without truly counting the cost, without considering the demands, like a king who knows that he's outnumbered by a greater army, and yet rather than negotiating terms of peace while that greater army is far away, he sits on his hands welcoming destruction and defeat. How foolish, Jesus says. So therefore, verse 31, any one of you who does not renounce all that he has cannot be my disciple. Again, it's, it's not a universal command to become a pauper, but rather to give up anything standing in the way of following Jesus. It's a call to repentance. Which some might ask, why, why would anyone sign up for that? And the Apostle Paul would answer, because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus, my Lord. As we've talked about before, that's Christian hedonism. It's giving up aluminum to obtain gold. As I've said before, no one grumbles his or her way into the kingdom in coming face to face with the supreme worth of God in Jesus Christ. Now, he's the, he's the treasure hidden in the field. He's the, the pearl of great value. Doesn't mean that life won't come without its sufferings, its sorrows, as we've surely seen in the lives of men like John the Baptist, In Luke's gospel account, and yet John gained in the end, even in and especially in the cross bearing of his own beheading. That by losing his life, John actually saved his life, as do we in giving up our lives for the sake of Christ, whatever that means he's calling us to. And so I would ask this morning, I'd ask it of myself, what is Jesus asking you to lay down? those idols that are standing in the way of truly following him. He goes on in closing out this morning's passage, salt is good, but if salt has lost its taste, how shall its saltiness be restored? It is of no use either for the soil or for the manure pile. It is thrown away. He who has ears to hear, let him hear. We wouldn't expect something so seemingly small something so seemingly insignificant as salt to impact the earth. It's cheap. And yet it's one of Jesus' metaphors for the church. Preserving, healing, seasoning in its effects, far spreading. Keep in mind, there there were no refrigerators in the first century. There were no whirlpools or Kenmores or Frigidaires. Those companies had not yet been started. Couple that with the fact that we're talking about the climate of first century Palestine, and you can begin to imagine the significance of preservatives in that historical context. Salt was a preservative used to to keep meat from decaying and rotting, and, and with that, a seasoning agent, adding flavor to that which would otherwise be bland. The difficulty is that salt that came from the, the nearby Dead Sea, in Jesus's context, it wasn't pure unlike the sodium chloride that we know and love, a mixture of sodium chloride and other impurities so that the salt content from the Dead Sea salt deposits could easily be washed out with nothing more than a useless deposit remaining. 
That's the word picture that Jesus uses to further drive home the point in his teaching on true discipleship and its cost. That, that we live in a world filled with death and decay, a world in which Jesus declares to his followers, you are the salt of the earth. Citizens of, of the kingdom of heaven having this preserving power, this battling to fight off the decay kind of power. That when we live in accordance with our citizenship under the reign of heaven's king, we actually function as a preservative in society. That like salt water brings healing to a wound, the church is God's plan to bring healing to a world ravaged by the effects of the fall. And with that, a seasoning effect. As one of the privileges we have as Christians is showing the world the savoriness of Christianity. A life of satisfaction in Christ, even when and especially when things get hard. But with that imagery, Jesus too offers a warning. That, that we can declare ourselves to be salt, like the many who declared themselves to be willing to follow Jesus in this crowd. But if we don't continue with him down the Calvary road to the end, not only are we useless, but too we are foolish. The word translated has lost its taste in, in most of our Bibles can also be translated is made foolish. It's a, it's a sobering word of warning, again, for those who have embraced an easy believism, which is all around us in our context. Having failed to truly count the cost for, before following Jesus down the Calvary road, have we truly counted the cost or somewhere along the way did we rush into, so to speak, being a disciple of Jesus without considering what Christ demands of us? I'll take the Savior who dies for my sins. I don't want the, the Lord that's married to that Savior. Like the soil in the parable of the sower that receives the, the seed with joy, yet proves to be rootless in faith when trials come. Let me read that C.S. Lewis quote one more time in light of our time in this passage this morning. The Christian way is different, Lewis says. Harder and easier. Christ says, give me all. I don't want so much of your time and so much of your money and so much of your work. I want you. I've not come to torment your natural self, but to kill it. No half measures are any good. I don't want to cut off a branch here and a branch there. I want to have the whole tree down. I don't want to drill the tooth or crown it or stop it, but to have it out. Hand over the whole natural self, all the desires which you think innocent as well as the ones you think wicked, the whole outfit. I will give you a new self instead. In fact, I will give you myself. My own will shall become yours. Christianity, it's about losing that we might gain, abandoning empty wells and bigger barns for the true fount of everlasting joy in the storehouse of heaven. And it's the only way, Jesus says, to win in the end. It's the only path to true eternal happiness. As we follow the one who counted the cost himself in setting his face to Jerusalem to give his life for lost sinners like you and me. If you're not a Christian, I would plead with you not to cling to the world only to lose your soul in the end. 
Repent of your sins, perhaps even the sin of easy believism, and turn to Jesus for salvation. And with that, bending your knee as you do in glad submission to his sovereign lordship, because you cannot divorce the one from the other. And as for we who profess to know and love and follow Jesus, this is my prayer. My prayer is that our our love for him would grow stronger and stronger, surpassing any and all other affections. That he would give us the grace to make sacrifices for his glory as we conform our lives to that cruciform pattern of Christ-exalting discipleship. I'll close in in sharing an entry that Jonathan Edwards, the, the great American revivalist preacher, Included at the age of 19. Don't hear a lot of 19-year-olds talk this way, by the way, what I'm about to share with you these days. Edward says, I have been before God and have given myself all that I am and have to God so that I am not in any respect my own. I can challenge no right in this understanding, this will, these affections which are in me. Neither do I have any right to this body or any of its members. I have given myself clear away and have not retained anything as my own. This I have done. And I pray God for the sake of Christ to look upon it as a self-dedication and to receive me now as entirely his own and to deal with me in all respects as such, whether he afflicts me or prospers me or whatever he pleases to do with me, who am his. May the prayer of Jonathan Edwards be your prayer and my prayer. And may it be our prayer to use the language of Hebrews as long as it's called today.